What's up, everyone? I'm Will Fulton, and this is Thrillist Best Podcast. All right, so if you've been on the internet at any point over the past four years, there is a damn good chance you've seen Andrew Ray's work. He is the mind and iconic torso behind the wildly popular YouTube channel Binging with Babish, where he recreates legendary food from film and television for his 7.6 million followers. He's done everything from SpongeBob's Krabby Patties to Kevin's Chili from The Office. Well, Andrew took a break from moving his home and kitchen from Manhattan to Brooklyn to call in to talk to me about some of his new projects, his favorite food movies, why he loves Frasier so much, his frankly horrible experience working as a line cook for one day, and a whole lot more. Um, just a quick note before we start. During the recording, Andrew was chased out of his own apartment into the streets of New York, which he explains early on, but, you know, just please forgive any background noise. Uh, nothing is normal right now, and we're all doing our best. <laughs> okay, here's our call. All right, so, Andrew, first off, can you just tell us where you are right now? Uh, paint us a picture so we can visualize you. <laughs> I will paint this noisy picture. <laughs> I am on the street in Soho because my apartment is being ripped apart right now, so it's uh, ironically, the streets of New York City are quieter than those of my what used to be my home, <laughs> right. uh, because I am relocating to the new studio in Brooklyn. Well, that's you know you're doing the move that we made. Uh, our old studio where we taped this was in Soho at the Thrillist office, and now it's been relocated to my own kitchen in Brooklyn. So we're right there with you. Oh wow. Exactly. Yeah, that seems to be a common thread nowadays, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, that's the move. Well, I have to ask you, speaking of kitchens, the kitchen that is the setting for your current videos, is that your actual kitchen, like in your living space where you, you know, cook breakfast and stuff? Or have you evolved to a place where that's just a set that you work on? <laughs> it, it was my personal kitchen uh, in my apartment. Um, I had a, people are always surprised by how small the kitchen is once they get in it. Uh, even though we're in New York City, it is objectively gigantic by New York City standards. Um, but uh, I use very shallow lenses that make it feel bigger than it is. Um, uh, uh, but uh, now I have relocated the operation to Brooklyn, to my new house. Uh, I bought a brownstone, and it's a two-unit uh, uh, home. So there's you know the owner's levels up top, and then there's a a garden apartment that's meant to be rented out uh, by the owner for a little extra income. But instead, I've retrofitted it into a office space, studio space, and multiple studios because the channel is growing and evolving into something that's going to be more than just about me. It's going to have more spaces, more um, more shows, new content. Well, that's great. That sounds like a good move. I Mine was definitely a downgrade because I'm in this tiny... Uh... This Brooklyn, also in Brooklyn, but uh, there's sirens, there's neighbors. Uh, I get packages all the time when we're recording this, but yours seems a little more comfortable. Um, so I want to ask you, I've heard you, um, I've seen you quoted as saying that you've very rarely seen something prepared in a movie the way it should be. And in your first video in the binging series, you say, I've always wondered what the food in, in TV and film actually tastes like. So at this point in your career, are you more interested in entertaining people or teaching people how to cook? Um, I'm very much split between those two objectives. I am a tug of war constantly between entertaining and informing. Um, 
I, I I don't know when I said that. I think that it's very dependent on the film or the TV show. Mm-hmm. Um, I th- I think that in the case of the episode that sto- that started the entire series, which was the Chris Traeger turkey burger from Parks and Rec, it was some writers that aren't necessarily um, you know cooks. Uh, maybe they're foodies because they decided to throw around a whole bunch of foodie buzzwords. Uh, you know, black truffle aioli and Telegio cheese crisp and microgreens and mm-hmm. all these things uh, because they were, they were making a joke. They were making a burger for Chris Traeger. Um, but, you know, Chris that goes on to say that he's been tweaking that recipe for years. And if he had ever tasted it, it's good, but it's very confused. Um, <laughs> so I, I, I think, I think that uh, a lot of times the reality of food is warped to fit the mold of whatever, stories being told um and in other cases it is a story being told in the case of chef the john favreau movie uh tremendous attention to detail was paid to the the legitimacy of the dishes being portrayed uh you know they had roy Choi on as the um as the culinary advisor so they uh they worked very hard to accurately depict what it's like not only to work in a restaurant but also to design dishes and and go to farmers markets and be inspired by ingredients and 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 find ways for ingredients to play nice with one another. Right. Yeah. In your estimation, is that the movie that most accurately captures cooking in general? Well, I'm also not a reliable source in that I have only ever worked uh, in a restaurant as a server. Sure. And once as a line cook for one day. <laughs> one day. I never told this story. This is. A- yeah, this is this. I don't know why I've never told this story. Maybe because I was embarrassed. I'm not embarrassed anymore. Well, it was a shitty little, you know, lunch spot in deep Brooklyn, somewhere down in Bay Ridge or something like that. Mm-hmm. And uh, <clears throat> it was the only only place willing to hire somebody in the kitchen who had zero experience or training. Uh, and they paid both of us paid dearly for that mistake when I <laughs> plunged a knife into my finger and um, uh, uh, cut my finger wide open. And they tried to get me to keep working through the lunch rush by wrapping my finger in gauze and then covering it with a, with a, um, with a, with a food service glove. But eventually it, it filled up like a blood balloon and I had to be sent home. And needless to say, I was not given another shift. <laughs> After you bled um, everywhere. No, I mean, at least you showed some commitment and, and tried to finish, right? You have to win some points for that. I certainly tried, but uh, yeah, no, I was losing, I was losing vital fluids very quickly. Going back to the roots of your YouTube channel, years before you started doing binging, um, you did have some uploads. I, I saw an Army of Darkness trailer. Um, you did a little video, a Miracle Blade test. And by the way, reading the comments on those early videos, I'm sure you've done it. Um, pretty hilarious. Uh, uh, thank you very much. I, um, uh, yeah, it's, it, it is funny to go back and look at these videos and see people saying, you know, I don't understand this recipe. <laughs> Um, for, for, you know, my trailer remixes or whatever, you know, I was a film student. YouTube was at the time kind of a novelty, um, you know, just a place where you uploaded a silly video, or if you were a film student like me, you uploaded a silly trailer that you edited together, but you'd add add YouTube. I don't think anybody imagined that it would turn into the, you know, content entertainment powerhouse that it is today. Of course. Um, one of the comments, uh, one of the top comments was like, I feel like I shouldn't be watching these. These are like actual personal. <laughs> I thought that was pretty funny. Yeah, I decided to leave those up just to, 
you know, sort of remind people that I'm just a guy who just started uh, making videos and they caught fire. People started watching them and started paying attention to them, started subscribing. And I think those videos are just like direct evidence that anybody, this, anybody could do this. Anybody could, you know, find themselves uh, on the other end of the YouTube spectrum. Uh, at, 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 at some point, if they just stick with it and if they just attack, you know, what they're passionate about. It took me 10 years to figure out. I, um, I, it took me, you know, well, I guess really it took me 28 years to figure out to, mm -hmm. to put food and film together, my two favorite things. Um, so, you know, sometimes it takes a little while, but, uh, sometimes it takes forever when you, when you, when you start and you never figure it yeah, out. Yeah. Sometimes it takes forever. Yeah, and uh, I'm very, very lucky to have, uh, you know, been watching Parks and Rec when I was trying to decide what kind of cooking show am I going to make to practice editing and, and filming. Yeah, <laughs> and on that, on the Traeger Burger, which was the first episode of the of the binging series, um, you made two conscious decisions that you pretty much stuck with. One is assuming a pseudonym, uh, Oliver Babish, and the other is obscuring your face, just being a kind of cooking torso. Was that, were both of those decisions an initial attempt at an, an anonymity? Uh, because, I mean, right now, it definitely doesn't seem like you are worried about hiding your identity, right? Yeah, no, I show my face as often as I can. Uh, <laughs> I do it in other, sh in other shows and basics with Babish. I'm showing some face. Um, being with Babish, my travel kind of vlog thing that's on hold right now for obvious reasons, mm -hmm. um, that uh, shows a lot of face, obviously. Um, but the, the, really, the the, uh, the only reason that I assumed that pseudonym is because I really only intended to make the show uh, as a Reddit submission um, mm. that speaks to the to the to, to the to the accidental success of the show. Like the name of the show is evidence of its accidental success. It's a dumb name, and I just named it arbitrarily because I, I didn't think it was going to go anywhere. Um, and uh, now Babish is literally, as we speak, being emblazoned upon pots and pans and knives for my cookware set that's coming out. <laughs> like, I really hope Aaron Sorkin finds out what's become of this ancillary character that he wrote, <laughs> um, that it's becoming a, 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 a powerhouse cooking brand. Oliver Babish is, for people who don't know, uh, you borrowed that name from Oliver Platt's character on The West Wing. And I wanted to ask you if either Aaron Sorkin or Oliver Platt has ever reached out to you? Have you ever made contact with them? Do, they, are, do you think they're aware of this? I, uh, I know that Oliver Platt is because Oliver Platt and John Favreau are friends. And he mentioned having told Oliver Platt about the show and about how it was named after his character. Mm -hmm. And I think he was like, oh, cool. Um, <laughs> no, no big, no big deal. Uh, and uh, and Aaron Sorkin, I just I just hope he's aware of it. One day, I hope to to touch base with him. He is he is a, uh, a hero of mine. Most definitely. And um, you know, on that note, would you say that Jed Bartlett is the best fictional president of all time? And if not, who would be your pick? He, he's the best president of all time. Uh, <laughs> never mind fictional. Uh, he's he's. Uh, I think that uh, uh, he. he yeah, no, I, he's far and away the best fictional president, and what I would give for him to be on the ticket. Oh, my God. I, I know, would right? give anything. We need somebody. 
that inspires and unites like like Jed Bartlett did. Maybe Martin Sheen could just do it. Sorkin writes for him and, and, and he delivers the speeches. I'd buy it. Well, it's definitely. And, you know, kind of on that line, that train of thought, when you do videos as Babish, are you being yourself? Do you consider it a character, an alter ego, or is it basically just you? I am 100% being myself. That's something that I realized that I had to distinguish when I met some people on my book tour and they were relieved to find out that I'm very much the same as what they see on camera because the show is a very literal extension of who I am and my personality and the, the, the voice that I wanted to bring to, to the medium. Um, I, uh, 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 that, that's a very long answer the question. Yes, it is exactly who I am. No, no character being played. Right, right. So, so Andrew, going back way, way, way back, uh, BY, before YouTube, as I understand it, you grew up in Rochester, New York, and, and before I ask you anything else, I have to ask, how do you feel about garbage plates? And if you would, can you explain to our listeners what a garbage plate is? I'll tell you exactly what a garbage plate is. Garbage plate is uh, a plate covered in garbage. Uh, no, I'm kidding. It's a... Um, <laughs> It's a plate designed for drunk folks. The garbage plate was supposedly invented by Nick Tahoe. It's basically a, um, a plate of macaroni salad and French fries, not either or, mm-hmm. and um, topped with uh, two hamburgers, two cheeseburgers, or two hot dogs. Um, and uh, uh, it's smothered in what's called hot sauce. Which is not hot. It is not spicy. It is a meat sauce made. Um, if it's made correctly, it's made from scrapings from the grill, uh, just like you know, flat top. All all the sort of you know, crispy fried beef gunk that you get off of there. They turn that into a sauce because they're innovators, and <laughs> it's oddly spiced. It has like cinnamon and like clove in it. It's kind of, it's weird. Um, and then it is drizzled with ketchup and mustard, and um, it is consumed ideally really only when in the throes of deep intoxication. No, exactly. It's, it's, it's weird. And it is, it is the Rochester food in my estimation. I don't know how you feel about that as someone from Rochester. I'm someone who just visited Rochester, but that's what always comes up as, you know, your regional delicacy, so to speak. I mean, name another Rochester food. You kind of can't. So yes, it is the Rochester food. (laughs) No, I can't Um, at all. The only other thing that I would... Yeah, I mean, the only, the only other innovations that I can think of are country sweet, which is a um, kind of wing sauce that likes of which I've never had before. It's like sweet and sour, kind of fruity, but spicy. Um, and they, they toss it on these like really, really thickly breaded deep fried wings. And they're just, they're just um, a little too much. Uh, <laughs> and uh, dinosaur Barbecue, which uh, graces New York City now with three locations, I believe. Dinosaur Barbecue originated in Syracuse, I think. Oh, that's very true. That That's a good call. Um, so, you know, speaking of Rochester... And, and, oh, sorry, no, please. and the Bellas. The, the Bellas is something that has not yet found its way south, but the Bellas... Oh, and what am I saying? Wegmans. Wegmans is uh, the finest grocery store in the known charted uh, universe. And um, it is slowly uh, creeping its its, its uh, tentacles into the entire eastern seaboard. Uh, we've, we've got one in Brooklyn now. 
you know what, Andrew? I am sorry that a few minutes ago I said that about Rochester. There are actually many culinary innovations <laughs> that came out of Rochester. I undersold it. That was my bad. Nope, that's about it. Um, <laughs> well, and and you uh, and you though, I think we, I think we can throw you in the mix right now um, as a culinary innovator or you know a culinary person of note that came out of Rochester. How did you learn how to cook? Uh, I learned how to cook uh, just piecemeal, um, mostly on YouTube. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm a YouTube cooking videos have been around a lot longer than my show has, so I am also somebody who learns to cook from. YouTube and various cookbooks and, and just, just trying shit out and failing. That's the best way to learn anything. All right, we're going to take a quick break, but more with Andrew when we get back. I know you've been uh, fairly open about struggling with some level of depression or, you know, struggling on uh, with feelings of being creatively unfulfilled leading up to the release of Binging with Babish, that series. Do you find that cooking itself is a means of escape and self-therapy? Or for you, is it more about the posting and making videos? Um, I, For me, it's both, really. Uh, cooking is not very therapeutic when I'm making the videos because I'm focusing on a lot more than you might otherwise if you're you know, just cooking for yourself or your loved ones. Um, I am pulling focus on the camera. I am making sure the camera's rolling. There's plenty of card space left. I'm making sure that I'm centered. Uh, I'm, 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 you know, because I'm generally the only one there. Mm-hmm. Uh, I make the show myself to a large extent. And um, so I'm, I'm taking on a, a lot of duties that you might not otherwise have to worry about. So cooking can be a little hectic when I'm, when I'm making the show. But just as a hobby and as a pastime, it is very therapeutic. But uh, yes, I, I and, and yeah, I do struggle with depression and uh, general anxiety disorder. I have my whole life, and I'm, I try to talk about it openly as possible because cooking is the cure for that. Getting help is. I see a therapist, and I'm on medication because I have a chemical imbalance in my brain, like a lot of us do. And uh, I encourage everybody who needs help to get help because that can often be the hardest, the hardest part. Right, right, and 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 it, along with help, having something, um, you know, like you said, that you can sink yourself into. That's that's positive, and I think certainly what you've done here has proven to be a positive thing. Well, thank you. Yeah, no, it's it's, it's all about yeah finding something that gives you fulfillment, gives you a uh, sense of meaning, purpose, and that's what I've been very lucky enough to be able to make it in my career. Definitely. Interestingly enough, we just did an episode of this podcast uh, with some members of our staff about the best food movies of all time. And right up your alley, obviously. And I was checking out uh, the videos of yours with the highest views. And so many of them are from cartoons or animated films. Uh, the Ratatouille from Ratatouille. The uh, the Krabby Patty from, from SpongeBob. We all agreed in our conversation that animated food has a really odd appeal. And it has a really odd kind of draw where it, it, it almost looks more appetizing than real food. And I think that's proven here. Do you agree with that? And what is your favorite animated food moment of all time? Hmm. Um, I do agree with that. I think for the same reasons that, um, you know, animation can be used to better portray something strange or different or, um, 
or, or unrealistic. It can also be used to portray food in, in, a, in, a, in an incredibly tempting way because there's complete control over the way that it looks like and the way that it's portrayed. Um, yeah, the Krabby Patty just looks better than any burger that I can think of right. uh, on in, in TV or film. I, I can't think of one that looks better because it's an idealized rendering of a burger. It's, it's exactly what you picture when you close your eyes and picture a burger. But then they also add the sort of mythos of everybody's obsessed with this thing and Plankton's obsessed with getting the recipe and SpongeBob's obsessed with perfecting it. It's, um, it's, it's, uh, it, it, it just creates this aura of, of mystery and it just makes you want to, to actually try it more. Yeah. Um, so my favorite animated food moments, I'm trying to think, um, actually, okay, this is an odd one, but it's one that jumps right back to when I was a kid. And, and it, I remember really, really wanting to try this. Um, I grew up watching a show called the angry beavers. I know it, of course. Uh, I know what I hear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, it was it was an intensely odd show on on uh, Nickelodeon that that you know, like SpongeBob, it just sort of delved into the absolute weird. It mm-hmm. just, saw, just tried to you know take take a semi sensical plot line and just see how weird can we go with this and how weird. There was one episode where they became gods and then destroyed the entire universe and then had to rebuild it. It's it like, like it was a fever. <laughs> like it was, it was out of control, but there was a snack that they were obsessed with. And I can't exactly remember what it was called. I think it was called like the naughty, naughty pine log or something like that. But it was a log. It was just a, the log of wood that they would split in half and it had a creamy center that they would look out. And even though this is clearly a fever oriented food, uh, I, remember it looking tantalizing and now that you 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 know injected that memory back into my brain now i think that might be something i have to explore someday see if there's some kind of like you know pine flavored ice cream or, or custard or something that i could put inside of the wall you know we'll see. Well, I, I was going to say, if anyone could bring it to life it, pro- it probably is you so i mean you talked about like the mystique and the mystery of uh, some of this animated food. One of my favorite food scenes of all time, which I mentioned before, is the imaginary feast from Hook. And I think just, what, like maybe a month or two ago, you did a video of the imaginary pie from Hook, and I love that video. I'm not going to spoil it. And I think this is a loaded question for someone like you, but if you had to choose one moment in film history based around food, not animated, but just, you know, just a food moment in movies, as your most memorable, most iconic, what would you choose? I mean, the easy answer would be, you know, Big Night, the, um, any moment in Big Night, be it the feast itself and when the timpano comes out or when one of the dinner guests cheerfully relents the fact that, that her, her parents were terrible cooks, um, or, you know, even the very ending, which is a single take of a wordlessly prepared scrambled egg with bread made between brothers who mm-hmm. were healing their wounds from the night before this perfect allegory for what, uh, being a brother of means, um, uh, you know, th- that's the easy answer. And that's, that's, or, or I could say, uh, that that's feast or whatever. But one of the ones that sticks out in my mind as 
kind of one of the most rewarding scenes. I think it takes the, it combines the culinary catharsis of those movies with the pure, uninhibited uh, kind of joy experienced by the kids in the, in the hook, in the imaginary feast. Um, I think is uh, in Jurassic Park when these kids who just went through this harrowing ordeal uh, being electrified and, and chased by dinosaurs and falling through a tree in a jeep and puking briefly and getting sneezed on by a brontosaurus back when we thought brontosaurus were a thing. And then for them to walk into this feast, it obviously can't last because there's still an, you know 45 minutes left in the movie, but it's this moment of peace and catharsis that not only does the food look amazing, all these cookies and pies and cakes and ice cream and all this stuff, and you you know you imagine what it's like not only to be be amongst all that food, but to to have found it, to have just happened upon it, just walked into it after um, such an ordeal. Uh, it, it, it's 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 one of the more culinarily satisfying scenes that I can think of. Yeah, I love that pick. It's almost like a mirage that appeared right in the middle of the chaos. And I will say that uh, that you know the famous Jello shaking in the spoon. It never made me want Jello more for any reason. Even though it's a terrifying scene, that little square. I think it was green Jello. It just looks so appetizing. Yeah, no, it's uh, and it's you know they lit it very well, and they used it specifically for what Jello does. Jello jiggles, and they (laughs) used it to show that a dinosaur was coming. Brilliant. Okay, so thinking about some of the recipes you have made, uh, has there ever been something you wanted to do, but you either couldn't figure out how to make it logistically possible, or there was just some other issue? Is there kind of a white whale of yours? Yeah, the white whale for sure is going to be Reese's uh, uh, turkey stuffed inside of monkfish uh, from Malcolm in the Middle. Um, (laughs) It's one of the more widely requested dishes uh, in the comments. People ask for it every year around Thanksgiving time. And I always say, you know, I'm, I'm not going to make that. That is going to be a waste of a, of a monkfish and a turkey. Where the hell do I get a monkfish, whole monkfish? I'm going to have to go to like a fishmonger or something. Yeah. It's probably going to cost $1,000 and I'm going to ruin it. <laughs> and, you know, what, what oven could support it? It's going to, well, whenever I do make it, I've said often it might be my last episode. Maybe I'll save it for the very end. Okay. And I'll blow every every resource that I need at it and just, just, just try and do it right. And, uh, I also have no idea how I'm going to make a good version. That's something I always try to endeavor to do is make a palatable version of whatever food is. If it was something objectionable. What was the most challenging dish that you were like, I don't know how I'm going to make this something that people actually want to look at and eat. I think, um, two of the most difficult, um, challenges were faced recently. There was Troy's casserole from the community, which was uh, deconstructed hot pockets. <laughs> no, bagel bites and a deconstructed hot pocket reduction with a Doritos glaze. Right. So it's really just a whole bunch of, you know, freezer foods mashed together in a in a in a, in a casserole and baked. But I wanted to I wanted to make a literal uh interpretation of what he was saying and that intimidated me for a long time but i think that i hopefully found a semi-satisfying answer even if it wasn't the tastiest thing in the world uh and 
Uh, also, recently, Weird Al's Twinkie Wiener Sandwich from UHF, which is a Twinkie with a hot dog stuffed inside it and topped with spray cheese, which turned out to be challenging for two reasons. First off, you know how, to make, how do you make a good version of that? And second off, when I actually tried the real thing, the, um, you know, the Twinkie Wiener Sandwich, when I actually took a bite of it, it wasn't bad at all. I thought that it needed no improvement, but that's no episode. Nobody wants to tune in for that. So I, I tried to top it, and I made a savory you know, Parmesan chiffon cake and filled it with uh, a, a cream cheese um, um, uh, um, chantilly and uh, topped it with a chorizo and then made a, um, a uh, spicy cheddar foam uh, for the spray cheese on top. And it just wasn't as good, honestly. Like the, 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 the hot dog stuffed in Twinkie topped with spray cheese, actually quite good. I mean, that sounds good to me, right? <laughs> I would eat that. I mean, it's sweet, it's sweet and salty and cheesy. Like, you know, what else do you want? Ah, I want nothing else in my life. So I know that you are a big Frasier fan. I'm also a, a, a very big Frasier head. I don't know. Is there a name for Frasier fans? There should be. Eggheads? Does that Frasier, make sense? Frasier Files. Frasier Files. Damn, that was sitting right in front of me. Um, where is the tossed <laughs> salad and scrambled egg video from you? I mean, it just seems like, like I definitely, people have asked for me to do that, but it seems like such a simple thing that I, I'm saving it for a rainy day. Well, like if I'm really, really down or, or sick or something, yeah. and I don't have any energy to make something complex or whatever, then yeah, I'll, I'll bust out the old tossed salad and scramble bit. I love that. And what's your favorite episode of Frasier? Uh, favorite episode of Frasier is going to be season eight. Um, I can't remember what ep- what episode number it is. I think it's maybe number three. Mm-hmm. Uh, or maybe it's season eight, episode nine. I don't know. It's called Taking Liberties. And it's the one where Frazier gets a butler. And uh, that's my favorite thing in the world, is Frazier with the butler. It's the most bougie and fussy thing. And the butler has this way of delivering digs on Frazier that sound like compliments. And it's it's brilliant. It's absolutely brilliant. It's just, and also there's a moment when Niles comes in and uh, the, the butler offers to, the butler's name is um, Ferguson. Uh, Ferguson offers to take his coat and <laughs> Niles does this quiet, open mouth gasp look at Fraser, like, oh my God. And Fraser does this knowing little devilish smile towards <laughs> him. Like it, it's the, <laughs> the cutest thing I've ever seen in my life. Um, and it is far and away my favorite episode. Yeah, that's a great one. Um, I I always enjoy the ones where they, they leave the apartment. So um, the ski lodge, uh, Road Warrior, where they drive the Winnebago. Oh yeah, um, New Year's Eve. Uh, those are those are all those are all great. You can't go wrong with any episode, really. No, no, and you know, a uh, uh, similar uh, episode to the ski lodge. Any any episode with a with a romantic mix up is generally going to be great. It's just classic television. Yeah, my, my favorite like subgenre of Frasier episodes is Frasier tries to get laid and it, it just does not work out. That's my favorite, which which oh, is a lot of the episodes. You love the show as a whole is what you're trying to say. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Which, is, which is every single episode. <laughs> um. All right, we're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back. I want to do um, a rapid fire question rounds but you know what you can take your time if you want <laughs> there are no rules here it doesn't really matter but uh okay sure, sure. <laughs> so it really means nothing but okay so starting off what is the most frustrating part of your life right now the most frustrating part of my life 
Um, is it this question? Man, it's, that's a great question because <laughs> it's clearly stumping me. The reason that it's stumping me is because I'm having such a great time right now. I'm working harder than I ever have in my entire life because I'm making more content all while moving studios and hiring new people and trying to build new things like a cookware line and, and uh, all kinds of stuff. Um, but uh, uh, it's all amazing. It's all a blast. So it's very hard to say, even though it's very difficult sometimes, it's very, I'd be lying if I said I was frustrated by it. I guess, um, I guess the thing that I'm most frustrated by right now is um, the having to say goodbye to everything. Yeah. Like, literally today is the last day I'm spending in my apartment. And I, I'm pretty, I'm, 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 I'm not a terribly sentimental guy, but uh, I, I, I do hate saying goodbye. And I hate knowing that once we get off the phone here, I'm going to have to go up there and spend the last hour that I'm ever going to spend in what was my home for the past two and a half years. Yeah. And I, you know, I bet some of your viewers are going to miss uh, your kitchen. You know, I'm sure your new kitchen will be great and have a lot of, uh, benefits but i bet people will you know miss seeing your torso in that familiar setting it's true we've tried to recreate a new kitchen that has a very similar vibe if you go to reddit if you go to the binging with that subreddit you'll, mm-hmm. you can see the first spill from the kitchen that's pinned up there um uh and and uh i've moved kitchen this is the fourth kitchen that the show's been made in so people have weathered moves before so i'm hoping that you know they're sick around right uh, okay, so speaking of frustrations, what is your favorite curse word? Gotta be fuck. Like, fuck is the perfect curse word. Um, but uh, uh, my, I, something that I'll say in, in, my, in, the, in the privacy of my home, uh, when there's nobody here, how stupid I'm being, you know, if I get frustrated with something, if I mess something up, I, I will generally say something that doesn't quite make sense. I'll be like, God, shit in my heart. shit in your heart that's not how you want to live uh how many drinks does it take you to get drunk on average (laughs) Um, uh am i on an empty stomach yeah uh four okay have you ever gotten so inebriated Uh, oh no please yeah give us i was gonna gonna say with a with a full stomach five or six okay have you ever gotten so inebriated while filming that you had to scrap an episode or an idea? Not me, but my dinner guest did once. I was doing a Fraser special early on, and I invited a bunch of friends over, and they got too drunk. And they, you know, one guy took over camera and got some really shaky footage that I couldn't use, and um, another some some other people started digging in before I could get my final shot, so I had to scrap that episode. Oh, that's I have not gotten so drunk. <laughs> that I've had to scrap an episode because, well, it's my job. And if I, if I were to get, if I were to ever do that, I'd feel like I did that at the office, which would be pretty fucked up. It would be. And you're a professional. So I, I respect that answer, but that also sounds like a classic Fraser episode, everything that went on there. Um, what do you think the biggest misconception about you as a person is in your public persona? That my name is Babish. Um, <laughs> but I, I forgive that one. Um, my biggest, uh, I think the biggest mis- misperceptions about me are that, um, you know, this is some kind of corporate outfit or large crew or something like that. At most, there are two people helping me out. Um, and that's only when I'm doing like, you know, multiple camera shoots when I need more than one person. And for the most part, this is 
a very small operation. I have my business partner and um, best friend who kind of runs the business side of things and is my my uh, one like you know sort of creative and business partners. And I've got a a very talented cameraman that I've brought on who does some extra editing for me. But you know this is this is uh, a a very a very big little operation. <laughs> What is the most embarrassing subreddit you routinely check? Um, probably, probably um, choosing beggars. That's, uh, that's a good one, though. Because it, it's a great one. It just makes me feel better about myself for not being an asshole. So that's what's <laughs> embarrassing. <about it. laughs> okay, fair enough. Uh, if the internet was about to be wiped out forever, oh no, and you could save just one of your videos, which video would you save? I hate that this is like a feasibly possible situation in our lifetimes. Um, I know. I would, <laughs> I would save the, the episode where I had John Favre on the show because he's one of my heroes and it was an incredible honor. It was a life-changing experience meeting him and that would be a memory that I want to share. Cool. Uh, Very cool. Um, if you could invite one person, living or dead, to a dinner party, who would you invite and what would you serve? I would probably have uh, may he rest in peace Anthony Bourdain over because he was my and everybody else's hero and I'll probably make Cliff Bourguignon because I know that was one of his favorites definitely um, so what are you working on right now besides the obvious that you want people to know about uh, right now I am working on releasing new shows with new people on the channel um, I can't divulge too many details but they're going to be some familiar faces and um, and uh, it's going to be I hope a very exciting time for creators because it's hopefully going to outline a new model by which creators can be um, can be fairly compensated for their work and enabled to make the content that they care most about. What what is one piece of cooking advice? Just one one broad stroke piece of advice that you would give amateur chefs that might be a little nervous to uh, dive into cooking. Well, don't be afraid to make mistakes. Um, making mistakes is how I got where I am in every aspect of my life. I've made a lot of mistakes, and I've um, tried to make a conscious, a conscious effort to learn from them. Um, and that's how you succeed in the kitchen and in life. Um, and um, I... Uh, uh, that and also just don't try to overdo it. Like a lot of people want to come right out of the gate with slug rods and reductions and truffles and whatever. Just try to make the best mac and cheese you've ever had in your life. Try different methods. Try out, you know, uh, uh, different recipes and, and see what works best for you. See, learn why food behaves the way it does. And your friends and family are going to be way more impressed if you make them the best mac and cheese they've ever had rather than some you know, really not well done five course tasting menu. That's what I tried to do when I was first starting out. That's great advice. Uh, okay, final question. Do you regret any of your tattoos? <laughs> uh, no, because um, even like I have one on my forearm that's a knife and whisk and it says born and bred, spelled B-R-E-A-D, which <laughs> I think is clever. I um, like it. And, and it's a very poorly done tattoo. It's very ugly. Uh, it's shaky. It's soft. Um, it was done by a very young kid who was just starting out. And I look at this tattoo as again as a very important lesson. I rushed out and got it the very minute that I won, not won, but that that, that my significant other at the time 
seated. She said, oh, okay, you can go get a, you can go get a tattoo. Mm-hmm. And um, I rushed out and just got it from the first person who would take me. And it's ugly as sin as a result. So it's a reminder to me to never try to be something for anybody else. I need to be the person that I want to be for myself. I have to be the best representation of myself that I can be and not try to put something on for somebody else. And that, that, that was a very important life lesson. So I don't, I don't regret this tattoo at all. Um, I think that that was a great answer. And I, I think it really sums up your attitude towards life and your work. And um, I just want to thank you so much for taking time out of this chaotic day for you and walking around Soho in New York and talking to us on the phone. Um, it was really enlightening and I'm a fan. So it was great to uh, glean a little bit of insight into your process and, and how you think and how you started and everything. Well, it was my pleasure. Thank you very much for watching, man. And thank you very much for having me today. Definitely. Can, can you give us any teases on, uh, on what you might be cooking next? Well, next episode is the uh, third part in a, in a trilogy of parks and rec meals, and it is the meat tornado. And um, I uh, got on the phone with a doctor of nutrition to ensure that it could potentially kill a guy. <laughs> uh, so, so it'll tick all the boxes for meat tornado. Always authentic. Always authentic. And maybe we'll see some Angry Beavers content from you soon, Andrew. One day. One day. All right, man. Thank you so much. Have a great day. Good luck with the move. You too, man. Thank you. Okay. Thanks so much. All right. Before we go, I want to thank you all for listening to Thrillist Best Podcast. This marks the end of season two, but please make sure you're still subscribed to our channel because we have some updates coming soon and a whole lot of fun stuff in the pipeline that you won't want to miss. All right, and a big thanks to the Thrillist podcast team, Jim D'Amico, Megan Kirsch, producer Mia Fask, Emily Feld and Brett Kushner, Mangesh Hadakudor from iHeartRadio, and a big thanks to Mr. Dan Byrne, who edited and mixed this episode and this season. Thank you, Dan, and once again, thanks everyone for listening. We'll be back soon. Bye. What are you doing?